All right, Hurley Burleyites, a pod subject today I've wanted to dig into for quite a while now. It both fascinates and troubles the hell out of me, if I'm being honest. Writ large, we're going to explore the current state of the U.S. Republican Party. How did it come to be that Donald Trump, walking straight off celebrity television, could affect such a complete takeover of the party? With me to do that is a conservative political who's not only had a front row seat to it all after initially supporting Trump, he's become a loud and leading voice in opposition to him, a never-Trumper conservative. Former congressman and presidential candidate, author, nationally syndicated conservative talk radio host, and prolific social media commentator Joe Walsh is here. Mr. Walsh is seen regularly on CNN and MSNBC. He's the author of Fuck Silence, calling Trump out for the cultish, moronic, authoritarian con man that he is. And he's the host of the White Flag podcast, in which Joe surrenders the urge to fight and has conversations that aim to find common ground with guests who have vastly different viewpoints from his own. Joe, it is a real treat for me for you to be on the Hurley Burley today. Thanks for making the time. Right back at you. It's awesome to be with you, my friend. Great. You're from the Chicago area. Born and raised, suburban Chicago. Did I, did I read somewhere that you play hockey? No, I, I've, I've never played hockey, and I never really learned how to even skate. How okay. horrible is that? Right. Do you have a favorite Blackhawk of all time? I'd have to say uh, Bobby Hull, yes. There you go. Well, why not? Of yeah. course, the choice. So, you know what I want to talk about, but I want to just get a little bit of sense of you first, if I could. So you, after university, you became a social worker. Yeah. Right? What inspired you to go into politics from that? I, I, I've always, uh, I, I'm my mother's child. I come from a big old Irish Catholic family, seven boys, two girls. My mom was a historian, uh, loved politics, was very involved with Nixon back in the day, long time ago. So she gave me her love of politics. I've always been interested in impacting life. Uh, and and uh, politics has always been a part of that. It's why I became a social worker and a teacher as well. Right. I've never and, been driven by money. I've always kind of been cause driven. Although money is not bad. M- money. <laughs> I wish. I wish I were a bit more driven by money. <laughs> I know. For the record, I, yes. <laughs> I got elected to Congress, my friend, and I was. There were four hundred and thirty-five members of Congress. And yours truly was voted the poorest member of Congress. Right. Well, you just didn't stay there long enough. I didn't stay there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So uh, now you may have given me a hint of it with your mother being involved with Nixon. But when you chose politics, why did you choose the Republican Party? When you signed up, what did the Republican Party represent to you? So I've always been, my politics from a very early age has always been kind of libertarian, generally the philosophy that I think started this country, America, which is um, a very limited government. We get to, uh, and, and the people go out and make money and take care of each other. And government's important, but government's limited. So I've always been, I've always had that philosophy. I've always feared a bigger government. Um, I've always believed fervently in individual rights. On paper, when I was a younger man, the Republican Party generally stood for a more limited government. Mm-hmm. But boy, they don't anymore. Right. And um, that had been evolving 
in the sense that the Reagan era of the Republican Party was much more committed to small government other than defense yeah. than, uh, than, say, Nixon was. Um, Nixon established the Environmental Protection Agency, for example. Bingo. So th- that was a different era of Republicanism than the Reagan era. Yeah. Right. Um, great, great, great point. And again, the very simplified version, and I've, this is when I teach this sh- shit, um, we've got problems in America. We have only two parties in America. Generally, the two parties, Democrats have looked more toward government to solve those problems. Republicans have looked elsewhere. That's historically been the dividing line throughout my life. Yep. Until the era of Trump, but as you said, David, it 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 has been changing. Okay, so let's just jump right to the present day because I'm way out of my depth here, Joe, okay. and I I and because something's happened, I really don't understand. And the Trump takeover of the Republican Party, a non-event recently, really startled me, and that was the Nevada primary, which, since it's meaningless, Trump didn't bother to be on the ballot. But Haley was on the ballot. And she got beat two to one by none of the above. 50,000 people in Nevada cast a ballot against her, made a point of casting a ballot against her. And I thought, wow, these people really want Trump. Yeah. Right? And Politico, Politico said... Donald Trump long ago bent the Republican Party to his will, but seldom has the sheer sweep of the former president's dominance been laid bare more clearly than this week. In one 72-hour span, Trump led the charge to crush a painstakingly negotiated border security deal in Congress, pushed the Republican National Committee chair to the exits, and in Nevada embarrassed his last remaining rival in the presidential primary. So my fundamental question, Joe, is, how did a guy come off celebrity television, be surrounded by nobody credible in the party, bring along a bunch of C-listers and grifters, break every political rule, violate core Republican principles, and turn that party into a cult of personality? Where, um, would, you be, where would you begin that story? <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're right. The question is, how did he so easily take over one of America's two political parties? And he did. How did he turn it into a cult and how did he so easily become the cult leader? Um, it's, it's, uh, I'd give you two answers. Uh, uh, and I was saying this way before Trump, our politics in this country is fucking broken. Our political system is broken. America is going through a revolutionary period politically. Both parties suck. We need more than two parties. The way we elect people, the way we elect our president, uh, um, in my lifetime, a Republican will never win the popular vote in this country. We need to reform the Electoral College. Our system's broken, and the average American for a while now has felt disconnected to our broken political system. You combine that with the fact that the average Republican voter is a middle-aged, older white guy. Um, and these middle-aged, older white folk 
have felt for a while that this fucking country and the world is changing like that, man. Man, it used to be when I was a kid, there were two, right? There, men were men and women were women and men married women and women married men. And you had to come into the country legally. And there were, there were only two genders and you could say Merry Christmas. And the, the plant, the plant was right there in town. And now I, I, I go on and on and on. The average Republican white voter saw their world changing in a nanosecond. And, and they were ignored. The Republican Party establishment, Mitt Romney, John McCain, all the rest, ignored these voters. And then, and I've apologized for this, Tea Party people like me, conservatives like me, got them fucking pissed off. We inflamed them. We, we, and, and it's still going on today. We, we, uh, we, we went after their fears and tried to get them angry about how quickly life was changing. So we created the climate where a demagogue like Donald Trump eight, nine years ago could come down that escalator and say, I'm going to build a fucking wall and keep brown and black people out. And all he had to do was say that, and boom, they were off to the races. We all created it. Right. You sort of alluded to two things there, and people debate these ideas about which is more important, economic collapse in the middle class or the working class, the deindustrialization of America, or culture. Yeah. Um, what do you think, how would you weight those things in terms of their influence? I, uh, I come from, I come from their world. I mean, I come from the world these folks live in. These used to be my friends, my voters, my supporters, my followers. I was MAGA. I mean, I voted for Trump in 2016. I still engage with them every day. It's much more cultural. It's much more cultural. They... They've got this vision of a 1954 America where the country is mostly white, the country is mostly Christian. Life is, again, simple. Men, men, women, women. It's just, uh, we celebrated Christmas openly and proudly. I could go on and on. It's, it's more cultural with these folks. And I, I never... I never demean these people because I was one of them. And I think generally they mean well, they do. And people like Trump and, and Tucker Carlson and all these other jagoffs have, have fed them bullshit. Um, but remember, in America, it was only 12 years ago that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton opposed same-sex marriage. So like shit's changed really, really quickly and they don't understand the change, but it's mostly cultural. Right. Um, so the, let's talk about race because maybe it's the most, maybe it's a thing. I mean, I, this is something Canadians really have a difficult time understanding, Joe, because we don't have obviously the same history yeah, um, and we don't have the same division that way in our society. It looks to me and has looked to me since the beginning of Trump like part of this is the last stand of white America. 
how much of that is how much of that is true? I think it's a part of it. I do not believe it's most of it. I come from the Tea Party movement, uh, the right. Tea Party movement, and I'm still a proud Tea Partier. But the Tea Party movement was the precursor to this, and, and the Tea Party movement helped lead to Trump. Um, part of it is race; the country's changing. A lot of it, though, is just cultural and moral values of, again, gender and um, uh, race is a part of that. But just uh, uh, life was so much more orderly. You know, uh, the Tea Party movement was all built around again, and this was is why I got into it. Government's too big. We have too much debt. It was it was a lot of fiscal. That's what drew me to it. But there was an undercurrent of these more nationalistic cultural things uh, of which race is a part of it. And I didn't give enough credence to that stuff back then, but it was there. So I'd say it's a part of it. I don't think it's the principal factor. But we okay. do have a you, yep. you nailed it. We have a very unique history. It's our original sin um, and we're not over it. And there's a big fight because a big part of MAGA now, the MAGA movement and Trump is, nope, nope, America's fine. We've done our stuff racially. We're fine. We don't need to teach about all this bad shit in our history. So there's a reaction now that's out there, very prominent. Where does Obama fit into that? If Obama had never been elected, would Trump have been elected? Somebody like him would have. Uh uh, somebody like him would have, because these cultural changes were happening again, no matter what, uh, uh, and 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 the economic changes. Um, remember, the Tea Party movement started before Obama. The Tea Party movement started when George W. Bush was president, and we were bailing out all the banks and spending all the money. There's no doubt, though, and I cannot tell a lie, Obama helped really accelerate it. Uh, um, the guy with the funny name, the black president, uh, it, it gave, it gave the uglier elements of the Republican party base to be more public. That was, that was a part of it. It, it would have happened no matter what. David Axelrod says that every president is elected as a reaction against what people didn't like about the previous president. Generally, generally, we've t tended to do that. We tend to elect the person that we did that, that the opposite of what we just had. Yeah. Uh, especially um, since you know the Twenty Second Amendment, no president can serve more than two terms. Um, I I don't know that that's true with Obama and Trump though, because to me, Trump was a reaction not just to Obama. Trump, again, I go back to this. Trump was a reaction to, look, and maybe you're experiencing this up in Canada. I think it's being experienced around the world. We are living in a populist moment 100%. Um, around the world. We're seeing the rise of authoritarians around the world, Brexit and all the rest. Um, political systems around the world uh, are not connecting with 
people and average everyday people are pissed off at their politics. So we're looking for someone who doesn't come from the political establishment. That's 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 the main reason Trump won. Trump said, I'm not a politician. I'm going to go to D.C. and fucking burn it down. Boom. Uh, Trump tapped into the populist anger. Bernie Sanders back in 2016 tapped into that populist anger. Um, uh, Barack Obama got hit with a lot of that. Hillary Clinton was an establishment politician. So Trump fed off of the populist moment we're living in. And we're still living in it. Right. Okay. Well, let's take that to the Tea Party then, because that's the direct antecedent, um, as you said. Um, I mean, I think a lot about politics changed in the bailouts of the financial crisis. Um, And I think when people saw how much money was flowing to people who didn't need it as much as they did. Yeah. um, And that there was no consequences for any of that behavior that cost them their home. I think that was an inflection point in, Bingo. uh, Bingo. in politics in the United States, but also in Canada, to be honest. Yeah. Um, So that, that's a, and by the way, by the way, you're right. By the way, we saw the same thing during COVID, you know, COVID hits. Yeah. America shuts down government right away rallies to give money to the big boys who, you know, took a hit during COVID that guy, that gal over there waiting fucking tables at that restaurant five nights a week. She didn't get a a six figure bailout. We did the same thing during COVID. It's amazing. So the tea party was a reaction to that, but it was very, as you would say, libertarian in its outlook. So how does that lead to Trump, who's anything but a libertarian, really? <laughs> right? I mean, first of all, it, it, uh, there's no discernible political philosophy to Trump. Would you agree with that? His philosophy is Trump. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, we, 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 I'm, I don't like to laugh about him. Uh, and I do it sometimes, and I apologize, because I think he's such a fucking clear and present danger to our democracy. But un- understand, Donald Trump is humanly incapable of caring about anyone but himself. Yeah, so his philosophy is Trump, period. Right. So where, other than the offensiveness, though, other than the offensiveness of Trump and the coarseness of Trump, which should offend all right-thinking people, in my view. Um, where did where does um, the Tea Party stop? And and what's the gap between what the ambitions for the Tea Party were and what Trump is delivering? So that because like, you were a Tea yeah. Partier, but you and remain a Tea Partier, but you're a never Trumper. So what's the difference? So the uh, the Tea Party stopped a couple of years after I went to Washington and we didn't do anything. So a healthy way to look at it is this. And I got to write the book about the Tea Party. There were two strands to the Tea Party movement. One was the economic libertarian, we're bankrupting future generations strand, right? Government's too big, our debt's too much, uh, is, is just out of control. That was the driving motivation of the Tea Party. There was this undercurrent of the, all these cultural issues as well and the nationalistic issues. We all went to Washington, the Tea Party guys did, to do something about the size of government and all the debt. We got there and we didn't and couldn't do shit. 
we didn't deliver. I mean, I knew it. I didn't go to Washington as a super young man. I knew Republicans spent every bit as much as Democrats did. But we went there and we couldn't deliver on spending or the debt. So Tea Party folk out there in America after a couple of years became really disillusioned because we didn't do anything. We didn't deliver. And then you began to see them get pissed off about some of these cultural issues. And then Trump comes along in 16, and he only taps into those cultural issues. We got to build a wall around America, screw the rest of the world. Um, I'm going to bring back, I mean, I remember when he said Donald Trump literally in the 2016 campaign, because he lies about everything, but he said, and he said this a bunch, I'm going to make it legal again to say Merry Christmas in America. I went on my radio show after I left Congress, I became a nationally syndicated radio guy in America. I went on my radio show that night and all these good people calling me saying, did you hear what Trump said? He's going to make it legal to say Merry Christmas. And I said, Steve, you, you can say Merry Christmas now, but they, they bought into all of that. That's what he tapped into. And like an accelerant, he just activated it. He gave people permission to say things that they had previously not felt permission to say. Merry Christmas is the most benign of them. <laughs> well, yes, yes. He uh, he broke all the rules. Look, and, and part of this is why did I vote for Trump in sixteen? I'm 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 one of the biggest right wing voices in America at the time. I'm on the radio all over the country. I'm on Fox News every day. I'm not really paying attention to Trump because I didn't take him seriously. But I but but I but I knew why people supported him because they were the same people who supported me. We needed disruption. And and my friend, you may disagree with me, but but I felt our political system's broken. This guy says he's going to go to Washington and blow it up and burn it down. Okay, our political system needs some disruption. I still believe that, by the way. So I got why. I got why people supported him. It just turned out that he's an evil, evil, evil disruptor. Um, But at the time, we needed disruption. Right. So, last time out in this space, I put the most recent StatsCan consumer price index data in the window. I won't repeat the deets, just the salient point of it all. In a time of marked inflation for almost every consumer good and service, and you know that's true because you feel it every day, the prices you pay for cell services and internet have done nothing but deflate. In the case of cellular, over 50% in the last five years. And that's in the broader context of national carriers like our presenting sponsor, TELUS, investing billions in their technology, infrastructure, and services. I've been talking about it for weeks now. We're in an innovation economy, Hurley Burleyites, and continual investment is the only thing that's going to grow it. But let's go back to those price decreases. A lot of it naturally flows from the increased competition the government has been aggressively calling for in the telecommunications industry. Good on the feds. There are four national players, plus 10 flanker brands out there now. That amount of choice, that level of elbows up, heated competition for every customer, means that Canadians can shop around and find the best deal in the market. And they do. There's more. According to Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada's recent report, we have lower prices across almost every kind of wireless plan than the U.S., 
We pay less than our neighbors for wireless services across all income levels. Even when you go back to 2020, more than 80% of Canada's wireless plans were priced below international benchmarks when network quality, plan type and other costs were factored in. And all this price cutting comes at a time when the wireless industry's labor, materials, energy and equipment costs, remember the inflation I talked about earlier, have gone up and up and up. We'll talk more about that next time. So what's the process by which he gets people to change long-held beliefs? Or did they not have these long-held beliefs and the Republican leadership was always out of touch? Let's just take foreign policy for an example, because for people that don't live in the United States, this is a big fucking issue, right? Like we rely on NATO. We think (laughs) NATO is important, right? Um, So uh, foreign policy, the United States has historically had some isolationist trends in it, not restricted to Republicans, witness Joe Kennedy. Yeah. Um, But... Certainly since Eisenhower, the Republican Party has been the party that stood for American leadership in the world. If that's what you cared about, that's who you would vote for. And Trump comes along and basically says, why do we give a shit what happens anywhere other than here? And everything we do internationally should just be focused around what the transactional benefits are for us in that moment. It is so different how can people have switched their views? Well, uh, we're talking about two groups of people, uh, the average regular Republican voter out there, and then all of my former colleagues, Republican elected officials, um, understand that by the time Trump got there, and this was actually part of the Tea Party, I, I'm not a neocon, and I'm not a big American needs to be all over the place kind of a guy. I, I lean more toward isolationism philosophically. The Republican Party was moving toward, it started with the Tea Party. A lot of it was just cut defense, cut whatever, cut spending. But we were moving, the Republican Party was moving much more isolationist. Like everything, Trump takes a legit concern and makes it a thousand times worse. The average Republican voter before Trump got elected in 16 was pissed off about all of our foreign entanglements, the fact that we were still in Afghanistan, the fact that we invaded Iraq. I I ran on all that stuff. What the fuck are we doing in Afghanistan? How, how dare we invade a sovereign country, Iraq? This had taken over the Republican Party voting base. Trump tapped into it. Fair. But then he made it, you know, a a thousand times uglier and worse and screw NATO. Let's get out of NATO, screw the rest of the world and let's love Putin. Trump takes it to an ugly place. It's kind of like the border, right? We needed a secure border. That's a legit sentiment. What does Trump say? I'm going to build a wall and keep brown and black people out. Hello? So he takes it all to an ugly place. Republican elected officials just want to get elected. And they saw where their voting base was moving. They saw how Trump succeeded with it. If you speak against Trump as a Republican, well, you're done as a Republican. Right. Right. What do you think? Uh, how do you think the nomination process that you have for ca- for candidates for Congress and Senate uh, interacts with this? 
Well, because people uh, have to play to that base. I mean, I've been watching this for a long. Times. I watched. I watched Mitt Romney. Yeah. Try to win a nomination in a way that would allow him to still win a national election campaign, and it's difficult. Right. Yeah. So, so because we only have two parties um, to win a primary on your side, generally the base is the more active loyal constituency you got to appeal to them right so generally if you're a democrat the more lefty you are the better you're going to do in the primary if you're a republican now the more it used to be the more conservative you were now now post trump it's the more loyal you are to trump you're going to get elected so yeah the the primary system plays to that there are movements afoot to open up the primary system in a number of our states, which I think will be helpful. These are some of the reforms. Here's what I, again, you and I could talk about this for 10 hours with alcohol. It would have to be with alcohol. It would really help you. Yeah. Right now, America's paralyzed. Right, right. This is my theme whenever I speak publicly. We are paralyzed with Biden, Trump. End of story. I don't care if we don't like it. Fuck it. It's Biden or Trump. And for the next nine months, this will paralyze this country. After this election, no matter who wins, you are going to see major reforms and you're going to see a major soul searching going on in both parties. It's going to be a field day after this election. Our nominating and primary process will be a part of that. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> so, Trump, unless I'm wrong, nobody of any significance in the Republican Party was associated with Trump's campaign logistically. The first um, one? The first one. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. So, how did he roll? All of the political professionals, all the established interests, all the power bases in the party. How did he come in with Kellyanne Conway and Rince Priebus or whatever the guy's name was and roll all those people? Um, it's, it's, it's the one thing that Trump got right. He instinctively knew how fucking weak and cowardly the Republican Party was. He knew how easy it would be to overtake. Here's what happened. So, so in that campaign in 2016, I'll never forget the very first debate they had. Remember all 17 of them, Jeb Bush and Rand Paul and Marco Rubio, blah, blah, blah. And there's Trump. The very first time the country sees Donald Trump on a stage with all these Republican governors and senators and he fucking kicks their ass. And he says all his stupid shit. He says all his crazy ass shit. He says all his lies. He doesn't talk like any of the other ones. And all the other ones are talking like your typical politicians. The night of that debate, I had every Republican establishment person call me, the donors and the consultants. And they said, Joe, can you believe this shit? What a fucking joke Trump is. They were laughing at him. Uh, one of them said to me, Trump will be gone in a week. This is crazy stuff. Thank God we're done with him. The night of that debate, I'm holding a live town hall with my radio audience, Republican base voters. They went crazy. They fell in love with Trump that night. 
Finally, somebody talking about securing the fucking border. I love it. Somebody finally is going to do something about crime. Finally, the, the, the dichotomy in the way the establishment first reacted to Trump and the way Republican base voters did was night and day. I went to bed that night convinced he was going to win. How did Trump do it so easily? These guys, the Republican Party establishment was so fucking out of touch. They didn't know where their own voters were. And it goes to what you and I talked about a, a few moments ago. These voters were angry. They were scared. They were confused. Life was changing. And this goof Trump said, I'm going to do something about it. They ignored their own voters. That's why Trump knew he could take over the party. Right. So what you're saying is that the George W. Bush era Republicans oh. missed the mark with their own voters and and helped create the circumstances in which this would happen. Fuck yes, I'll, uh, Jeb Bush. <laughs> Jeb, Jeb's please, up on. Please clap. <laughs> please clap. Like me. Please love me. <laughs> Jeb fucking Bush, and he wasn't the only one. He's up on stage during that campaign talking like a normal, happy country club Republican. Fuck that. And Marco Rubio back then said he tried to sound like Reagan. It's morning in America. No, the average Republican voter felt like our country is being invaded. They're fucking pissed off. Yes, none of the establishment understood I get a lot of shit because people like me did help get these voters scared and angry. I've done that. But we, I want, we weren't the only ones. The, the establishment, as you said, ignored these voters for years. And all they had to do was listen to them and talk to them. Yeah, they blew it too. They're responsible too. With the odd exception, things in business tend to get better to advance. People might talk about the days when cars were self-repairable contraptions with a motor, carburetors, and a drivetrain, but the modern versions, the ones with covers over the engine and CPUs and computer diagnostic ports, are by just about any measure far better. Notice how rust-proofing and muffler shops have largely disappeared. So it is with trains. They might look much the same, but they are leaner, packed with tech, safer, smoother, and much better for the environment. I've talked about that here before. What I haven't talked about is the basic design of the train's most basic component, the rail car. There was a time, back in the middle of the last century, when boxcars were made of wood, and shippers just filled them up as best as they could with freight. Then, in 1956, a fellow named Malcolm McLean stood watching dockloaders moving freight and filling boxcars, and marveled at lack of efficiency and had a really big idea. Standardized containers that could be loaded and sealed before delivery to the train terminal. They would be theft resistant. They could be transferred seamlessly from trains to trucks to ships at sea. They would be safer. They would take less work to move around. And from the moment the first container shipment was delivered that year, transportation changed profoundly. Today, Malcolm McLean's invention utterly dominates transport. There are car containers to move automobiles, refrigerated containers to carry perishable supplies and food, and all-purpose containers to move just about everything else. They come in every imaginable box shape. They are reusable. They are durable. They are interchangeable. They simplify supply chains. 
Shippers can track them in real time and they move the economy. CN, our sponsor, has about 8,000 modern containers in its fleet. It's a long way from the days of dumping cargo in wooden boxcars. Oh, one other thing. CN's container-laden freight trains leave the station and arrive on time. Shipping has never been more reliable. So do you know the, um, uh, do you know the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Yeah. Right. So what's the matter with Kansas postulates that uh, Republicans for years uh, won elections in the heartland despite policies that weren't particularly good for those people because they won on cultural issues. Yeah. Right. Guns, religion, etc. Right. Um, so ultimately, again, back to the original question. What broke the back of the Republican Party more? Those continuing economic policies that were anti-working people or the fact that they didn't keep up with the cultural change in their own, popu- their own population? Because they were supposedly the experts at exploiting cultural grievances. Um, I think it was mostly culturally driven. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. I think the yeah. change in the party has mostly been culturally driven because a lot of these voters believe that on economic policy, neither party really took care of them. As as we became a more global market, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it's not 1954 where the local plant is in town where everybody works, now that plant, that stuff's being made in China, and neither party seemed to do anything about that, then it just became year after year of resentment about cultural issues. And I think that's still primarily where the party, the base of the party has moved. It's primarily now an angry base culturally about where America's at. You know, a bunch of... uh big thinkers in places like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and stuff really thought it was very courageous of Bill Clinton to go into union halls in 1992 and say, those jobs are gone and they're not coming back and we have to prepare for a new future. And everybody who's in the establishment applauded Bill yeah. Clinton's courage in telling people the truth. But presumably people reacted differently to that than the Wall Street Journal did. Yes, but... Then years later, along comes Trump, and Trump says, I'm going to bring those jobs back. Exactly, which is what they've been waiting for somebody to say. Yes, but 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 he's not. It, 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 like, a lot of that was, that was all bullshit. Uh, I'm going to bring the coal, these coal jobs back. Hello? Mm-hmm. You're going to bring coal back? Mm-hmm. Um, and he went on and on and said that. So he did feed them a lot of... Uh, this this goes to partly the populist moment we're living in. We've moved into a giant world kind of market thing. Every country individually is impacted by this. And uh, the average voter doesn't feel like their government's doing anything to help them transition to this new world. All right. So in terms of the changes that these white men are facing, middle-aged white men are facing, what is it really that is bugging them? Um, so you mentioned, you, you know, you mentioned uh, same-sex marriage and how Obama, absolutely. So in 1968, uh, it was illegal to be a homosexual in Canada, right? 
In the year 2000, I worked with a liberal government on a, a definition of marriage that defined it as a union between a man and a woman. Yeah. By 2005, same-sex marriage was legal in Canada. And now, of course, there's a big debate about transgender people and particularly transgender children and, and all that. So this is a debate that's moving fast yeah. for people. So I get that one. But what else is there? Um. Uh, like, uh, by the way, my machine just told me that Andrew Yang wants to connect. Should I do that? Oh God. (laughs) Uh, Am I being recorded right now? (laughs) I'll take the fifth. I won't answer that. (laughs) Don't return that call. Um, I, it's such a great question. It's, um, like it, a lot of it, like life is passing them by. They need somebody to blame. They feel like, and there's some legitimacy to all this. Their individual rights are under attack. They're taking away my guns. Um, uh, uh, they're taking away my speech. They're telling me what I can and cannot say. Um, uh, but a lot of it is, it's a, a lot of it, and I, because only because they tell me this so much. That life was so much simpler back then. Um, and some of it is, you know, America was a more Christian country. Mm-hmm. We more proudly wore that on our sleeve. You'll note that the Speaker of the House right now, a Republican, had, it, had publicly on the record, uh, is open to America becoming a Christian theocracy. Uh, antithetical to our constitution, but he represents a lot of where the base is. I want America to be a Christian country again. Well, it never was, but so a lot of it's that, a lot of it's religion. Um, it's it's just things have changed so quickly. Do Latino Catholics count or does it have to be white Protestants? <laughs> well, and again, great question because that's such a blown fucking opportunity. <laughs> Latino Catholics who are very conservative politically but yet they look at the Republican Party and and they see the, the the embrace of white nationalism, not even under a rock anymore. It's out there. Um, it, it's yeah, they could get a lot of Latino votes if the Latinos didn't believe the Republicans hated them. Well, but here, yeah, <laughs> true. But here's what's interesting. Like I've said, and I said it again this morning in an interview. I believe my former political party is a shrinking, dying national party. I really do believe it. I think the Republican Party is going to become a regional rural party. But man, the only thing that can keep this Republican going party going is a Democratic party that's fucking out to lunch. I mean, aren't there you, two parties inside that party? The Democratic Party? Yeah, it feels to me like it's two parties. Well, I don't know. Hard left progressive, the AOC wing, and then what you would call the Biden wing. Yeah, here's what I do know. I That may be an apt description of it. Because the Republican Party is so batshit crazy and has become, and has become anti-democracy, as a country, we haven't really had to examine the Democratic Party's problems because the Republicans are like right there, the threat. And the Democrats haven't had to examine their own problems. They've got issues. They're no longer relating to working class people. 
voters without a college degree in America now are moving more Republican. Democrats are grabbing the wealthy, college-educated suburban people now. Same phenomenon here in Canada. Mm, interesting. Same phenomenon here in Canada. The progressive parties are losing badly among the working class vote. Because what I get, you maybe you get this too, what I get all the time talking to these people for the last five years, these working class voters who don't really like either party, they all say the same thing to me. Joe, the Republican Party, a bunch of assholes, but the Democratic Party, they're a bunch of elite snobs who don't understand me. And a lot of those people will vote for the asshole. They're largely right about that too. I agree completely. Mm. I totally agree. Like, like the Democrats are blowing it because they have a unique opportunity to really enlarge in their tent, like a political realignment because the Republican party's shrinking, but they're blowing it right now. Right. Right. Um, media, you're part of the new media world. Yeah. Right. As am I in a way. Um, and faster here in Canada, I think, than in the United States, but mainstream media is uh, disappearing as an influential force. Yeah. Um, and mainstream media played a significant check on extremes in society, I think, because it really controlled what people were exposed to in terms of ideas. And they told us what was sort of r- the right things to think about, if not what what to think, at least what to think about. And now there's none of that anymore. What role do you think that played in the rise of Trump and the inability of the Republican Party to control that? Oh, I think it played a big role. I think it's played a big role in how fucked up our politics are, but there's no answer to it. Or at least in America, there's no governmental answer to it. And I don't want there to be. I believe in the marketplace, a marketplace of media sources. I know there was the day way back There's no money in it anymore, though. Well, I, I know, but what's the, I, I, I love this conversation, but I, but like, what's the answer to it? And I always come back to what do you, it is a problem, but what do you want government to do about it? Um, uh, there was, so in day. Canada, in Canada, the liberals are, are sending uh, direct subsidies to media organizations. The government is, and the consequence of that is that conservatives now think they've bought the media. So bingo. I mean, that would be, we couldn't do that here in America. That would be anathema for any government entity to feed private media companies subsidies, uh, which I think is good. You shouldn't do that. Uh, look, I, I I don't want to go back to the days where you had, you know, three networks and Walter Cronkite and they gave you their news. And from their perspective, I don't want to go back to that. We live in a marketplace. You have a voice. Um, I have a voice. I think that's all a good thing. But the danger of that, the downside of that is we become balkanized and we, we, the paucity of truth, like truth kind of goes out the window. I'm in the commentary business. Yeah. Right. First of all, my audience is a rounding error of the population of Canada. So I'm insignificant. Second thing is I'm parasitic to news coverage because I comment on news coverage is what yeah. I do, right? Yeah. I'm not developing or creating news. <clears throat> and I, I'm not saying that it was idyllic to have three networks and a couple of newspapers that told us what the deal was. 
But I do think it was idyllic to have a common fact base around which we could argue what to do about that fact how do you base. Get that? But so we have a common we, fact base. Well, I don't know do how we, we get back to that. Yeah. But it's pretty know, difficult yeah. to have a functioning democracy without it. It's a challenge. But I, I don't know what the answer is because there's no government governmental solution to it. So this is going to be a rough period that America on the media end is going to have to get through. Um, but I cannot, I cannot argue with you in that, especially it's most pronounced on the right. You turn on Fox News any fucking night. Most of what you're fed is not the truth. It's one thing being biased. MSNBC's biased. Everybody can be biased but no truth. I just take climate change for Christ's sake. I mean, right. I'm all, I'm all in favor of vigorous debates about what to do about it. But if we're still debating whether it needs anything needs to be done about it, we're in, we're going to cripple ourselves. Or if we're debating as to whether it's a hoax or yeah. not. Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's, let's, let's end on the future. You 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 outlined something pretty stark there, which you preempted a question, which is how does the Republican Party become a real party again, and um, that has and by a real party I mean an organ an institution that has a set of core beliefs and values that don't vary dramatically from leader to leader that are consistent. It's a party that stands for certain things, and people join it because they believe those things. I was going to ask you how they get back to that, and you were going you you sort of said you don't think they will that they're headed down a minoritarian road. So something will have to replace that. Yeah, I think that ship sailed. I, I do not believe this Republican Party can be saved, fixed, or reformed. Um, it's a party of middle-aged, older white folk. They're going to die. Older white people die. And it, the party is not replacing itself with younger voters and voters of color. I think it's on the authoritarian track. It's on. I don't think it's getting off. They need to be defeated this year. I think in the next election cycle or two, you're going to see the birth of a legitimate third major party in America, a center, center right party, kind of representing some of what the Republican Party was. I think that's coming. The Joe Manchin party. Well, Joe Manchin. Uh, no, no, no. I, don't no, mean, I, know I, I actually saying. didn't mean. I actually didn't mean him because I know that he's not that that serious a person. But no, I, but you made a good point. He yeah. doesn't. He's not at home in this Democratic Party because right. I think the Democratic Party could be like ideally. To me, we have four parties in America: a solid lefty, a solid righty, and a center right, center left party. Yeah. Maybe that's where we're gravitating. I think we'll get the center-right party first because the Republican Party is so far down the line now. Okay. okay. So, But I'll say this as well. Outside of the party, and everybody listening to us needs to hear this, I'm a dark Irishman, man. I, I don't think America has been this divided since just before the Civil War. I said we're in a revolutionary period. I believe that. I don't know that the American experiment can stay together. I don't know that all 50 states can stay together. I mean that. I believe that. I was saying that before Trump ever first got elected. 
This is a scary, scary time in the world's oldest, greatest democracy. I mean it. I don't know if we can stay together. What are the fissures? We as a people no longer agree on the founding principles of what this country began with. We need to have that conversation and still see if we do. The second thing I'd say is now we're at a point in America, and it's real, where your political opponent, that person you disagree with, is your mortal enemy, and I want to destroy them. Uh, that has to change, no matter who wins in November, or we're done as a democracy. When you said you don't think all the states can stay together... Is it a state-by-state state division, or is it a rural-urban it's, it's, division? It's a, it's a pure rural-urban divide. Uh, um, the problem is, we structurally, we are 50 states. And I think a lot of the rest of the world never appreciates the fact that we're so big, and I don't think the rest of the world understands our concept of federalism. Right. These 50 states, in many ways, are their own entities. Um, and it's and it was meant to be that way, but but I always I always I, I I do it like this. If you were starting the United States from scratch today, take our entire landmass as it is, and you were starting a new country today, I think there's no way you make us one country. I think you'd carve us up into four or five or six regional countries. It is an urban-rural divide, which makes it tough, right? I come from Illinois, outside of Chicago. Chicago's as Democrat as you can get it. Illinois is a blue state because of it, right? How crazy. But you go 60 miles south of Chicago, the rest of Illinois is a rural red state. So I don't know how it would be carved up. But the point is, because we have 50 states... I think still in my lifetime, you could easily see a serious effort by a state to say I'm done. I hope we don't get there. Right. Right. A question that I get asked a lot by Canadians is whether Americans factor in um, the significance of the consequences of their choices outside of their borders at all. So, you know, most of my life, I have sort of blanched a little bit at the boisterous American exceptionalism yeah. uh, that I've heard out of America. But nonetheless, I've believed in American exceptionalism myself. And, you know, we look at a world now in which China is a rising power, in which India is a rising power and a wild card, in which Putin has expansionist ambitions. Um and the United States is more important than ever. You know, I had on this show the ambassador uh, to Canada from Germany. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about whether if the United States withdrew, whether Europe could step up. And she said, well, he could step up, but it can't replace the United States. She said, the United States is the world's indispensable nation. Okay. It's the German government. The United yeah. States is the world's indispensable nation. Do people understand that when they're voting? 
I'd say less than half of the American people understand that. Look, I, I think I think America is exceptional. I still think it's the only country in the history of the world founded upon an idea. But here's the, the, the flip of that, and I know you know this, compared to your brothers and sisters in Canada and, and, and folks in the rest of the Western world, we're the most ignorant. Americans are the most ignorant about the world around them. Poll after poll shows this. And I think it's the that privilege it, of being large. It's not yes. bad people. You're just the privilege of being big. That's all. A big and maybe too uh, too wealthy and having too much. We've grown soft and lazy, and and we've lost our. We're not as informed as we need to be. So I think there's an ignorance among the American people about the rest of the world that has helped lead to this isolationist moment, which is let's just extract ourselves from the rest of the world. Um. There is an isolationism going on now, and it's a big thing. Trump obviously personifies that, but it's not only Trump. So, no, to answer your question, there's there's a, a, a not at all an appreciation of the role we should play. I'd say a part of that is we've made a lot of fucking mistakes. And the war in Iraq way back when was a big, big mistake. Uh, and because we're not dealing with shit at home, it's an easy thing for Americans to think, look at all the money we're spending over there. Look at we still have troops over there. It's an easy thing to attack because of how angry people are here about what's going on. Yeah, Iraq really was an historic mistake. Oh, what a f totally. You know, as bad as Trump is, W actually gives him a run for his money, doesn't he, as a bad president? That mistake alone in his in the history of this country may be one of the biggest so i i'm i'm not going to fight you over that now i now i will say I, I will just say uh uh and w did a number of other things i didn't like i think he's a, a basically a decent guy that's what everybody uh, says that's what everybody says but you won't convince me about that in cheney though <laughs> I'm not going to try to. I'm not going to try to. And, and, but but understand, like, and, and Trump reacted to this, but I come from this, and a lot of people do. I despised what Dick Cheney and W did. I, it, that, that was the antithesis of what I felt. And, and a lot of us felt that way and ran for office because of that. But we always have every discussion in comparison of Donald Trump with anybody else has to be girded by the fact that in the long history of this country, only one president lost an election and then refused to participate in the peaceful transfer of power and tried to overthrow that election. Uh, Joe Biden, if he loses in November, won't do that. George W. Bush never would have done that. Barack Obama never would have done that. Only Trump. 100%. Okay, last question. Biden going to be the candidate? Yeah. I Come on. So. Come <laughs> on. That can't be the fucking answer. I'm looking for a different answer. Last Thursday was an inflection point. He's finished after last Thursday. Um, if unless Joe Biden says I'm not doing it, he will be the candidate. There will be no move to push him aside. That's not how this works. Uh, I will say that he, I agree with what you said last week was a disaster for him. If he doesn't show the American people that he's up to this, 
he's going to lose to a psychopath. He'll lose. That will be his legacy. Yeah. I mean, Biden's got one issue, his age. And if he doesn't take it on head on, he'll lose to Trump. How do you take it on? It's a truth. Ah, well, well, okay. I agree. So here's the deal. The only way you take it on and only Biden can do this. No, no campaign spokesman. Joe Biden's got to get the fuck out there every day. He's got to look the American people in the fucking eye every day and say, you know what? I'm 81 fucking years old and it sucks. And you know what? I forget shit. I forget names. I forget dates. I need a nap every day. Some days I need two. I've slowed down. He should have fun with it. He should embrace it. He should say, but look at all the shit we've accomplished. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to be another year older, but, uh, 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 and I'm going to make more mistakes, but we got more to do, blah, 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 blah. He's got to embrace his age with humor and honesty and not ignore it. Uh, you're right, man. If he ignores it, he's done. Yeah. Listen, I've taken up so much of your time. You got to get back to your own work. Thanks for this chat. It was really interesting, really informative. I've enjoyed this. You are the best. Thank you, Canada. <laughs> All right, Canada. There's a little. Uh, I want to uh, thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. I want to thank all of you who watched or listened, and a particular thank you to Joe Walsh for coming in here and giving us a ringside view of uh, what's happened to the Republican Party in American politics. It is like all conversations, Joe, that I have these days about anything depressing. It should be. I wanted to depress you. Yeah, well, you did. <laughs> all right, brother. Take care. <laughs> Thank you, Hope my Hope our friend. paths cross again. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.